Welcome to the Admin Admin Podcast, episode 96, a podcast for IT professionals. Hi, I'm Al. I'm Skip. And I'm Jerry. In this episode, we talk about net data and net encrypt. We talk about Git drone and self-hosting. And we also talk about whether to go SaaS or open source. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Okay, everyone, how's it going? Yeah, not going too bad. Um, probably worth mentioning John's not with us again um, this time. He's was here for the predictions episode, but he kind of committed to that one. But yeah, he's still got a few things going off at work. So once they're all sorted, then um, hopefully he should be back with us soon. That'll be good. So I think, Jerry, you wanted to speak about net dating, first of all. Yeah, so this 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 bit of software, I've I've known about it for a few years. It's called NetData. As far as I can tell, the company's called NetData as well. Um, I first came across it um, when I wanted to monitor some hosts that I was uh, that I was using, or that I, a client I brought up for a client, and uh, happened across this. Um, so a few features that it has it can it can act as a basically a, an exporter for Prometheus, although you know people might obviously have their own um, setup already with Node Exporter. Um, it has a web server um, which it runs by default, and it runs on local hosts for security reasons. So it's not kind of presenting it to the to the outside world. So if you log into it, uh, log into the machine, and for instance, do an SSH tunnel to it. You'll get some nice, pretty graphs being generated by the the node that you're monitoring. And so recently, they seem to have put together this uh, software as a service offering called NetData Cloud. As far as I can tell, it's free for uh, unless you're a, a really big enterprise, they might uh, they might come knocking. <laughs> depending if how many tens of thousands of nodes you're monitoring, but for uh, you know, quite a high number of nodes. Uh, it's it's free, as in free as in beer. Um, so all you have to do is run a certain command, um, which is given to you by the web portal, um, and then your mach- and and you have to be okay with obviously your metrics being sent to their service. But once that's done, you get these nice graphs in a nice interface, a nice GUI. You can divide them into different uh, kind of rooms, so you can have like a, a subset of servers in a certain place in in the UI, um, and, you, and you get these nice, pretty, pretty graphs in a kind of centralized place, and things like email alerting from this service, and and so on. So yeah, it's really good in that in that sense. It's um, it's good for my particular use case, which is uh, a lot of different. Uh, client servers which i'm trying to monitor in one place and alert centrally so if there's an issue that then i'll i'll know about it the default installer is um a bash script basically it's, it's, it's that typical curl this bash script and mm. and uh hey presto our software is on your machine i don't really like that i mean it's it's a well done script but i'd, I'd rather have like a uh, an artifact to install and those are available. So there's an up-to-date package in the Appel uh, repo for CentOS and Red Hat. Um, and uh, there are Debian thir- third-party Debian packages available. So they, they basically take the source and automatically build a, a .deb package. 
how up to date is that one? Is it pretty much almost instant or is it a few days behind or something? The third party one is instant as far as I can tell. So yes, basically as soon as they do a release, they'll, that will be, that package will be, be built. As far as, as far as Apple goes, that was uh, quite a recent one recently when I tried to install it. Uh, so it's, it all looks good from that, that point of view. Um, yeah, they've got a really good community. I, I had a question uh, asked on their forums, which are really, really well run. And it looked like, a, you know, an employee got back to me, you know, an, a non-paying user uh, in, you know, less than half a day. And we had the problem resolved within 24 hours. So that was really good. Um, and it just uh, something about the way it works. You you install it and it'll if you install it and do nothing, you get a very basic um, set of metrics, basically what what it can pull out of the f- the kernel, so the proc file system, yeah. uh, that that kind of thing. Um, but that's that's often enough to diagnose uh, issues that you might be having. Um, and if you look at the the log when it starts up, you can see that it's going through looking for uh, config files, um, things like uh, you know MySQL. Uh, and uh, PHP is, is something that I'm supporting. Uh, Apache weblogs is another thing, so I can do basic analysis on Apache weblogs. Um, but it, in, if you want to get these plugins working, it's often just a case of configuring your service to run or, or adding a uh, like an unprivileged user that can then do the monitoring of that particular service. So that's all really good, really nice and easy to use. So I just thought I'd highlight it if anyone is in in my situation uh, or they just want to monitor their a few servers they've got running. So are you using this, you're using it yourself and are you using it to monitor different things then, are you? Or? Yeah, yeah. So I've got a, like a room for each client. Um, also, users can be added by their email so they can only have access to certain bits of your yeah. kind of login. Um, and yeah, I've just got like an overview of, of what all the, my client servers are doing, uh, and get emails when, when anything happens. I do need to do a bit of, uh, filtering and, and kind of, um, so I only get the emails I need. Um, I think you can use other mediums, other messaging formats as well, other than email. But, um, yeah, I'd have to look into that. Okay. I might have a look at that, bit monitors and stuff. So, yeah. One thing I was going to ask on it was um, I've used it in the past, but only as in um, installing it on a couple of my own machines and just you log in, you see the web UI, you can see all the statistics for that machine. Mm. The one thing that I wasn't able to do at the time, I don't know whether it's just I didn't know about it or whether it's a limitation of it being installed on the box and not, you know, a centralized place was not being able to overlay metrics against each other. So, you know, not being able to say this is CPU usage across a few servers. You'll see on that server. If you want to see on a different server, you'll have to change to that server in a UI and then start looking through that one. Is there a way of sort of overlaying the metrics and overlaying statistics or is it still very much a click here, go to the server and look at it and then go to the changed changes so you can see the statistics of another server or is it more or altogether? It still is like that, but you you do get kind of aggregated metrics. So if you add a load of nodes to, to a room, they call it a war room, and then you you get a, the initial bit UI has 
those kind of aggregated statistics, which can be a little bit confusing. It's like the load, if, the, if you've got a load of one on four servers, you get a load of four showing up right. in that aggregated thing. Yeah. So you, you can kind of see, uh, you know, overall stuff there, but you still have to drill down. But I guess that's where the Prometheus thing would come in handy if you can just yeah. ping the uh, ping an endpoint and and get the uh, the stuff back to Prometheus, then you yeah. can do that kind of aggregation that way. Yeah, well, I mean, when when I started using Prometheus, it was around the time that I started not using Net Data because mm. I found that a lot of the metrics came out of Net Data I could get out of Node Exports and all that kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, at the same time, you know, it's kind of an out of the box experience with it. One of the things that, yeah, I suppose going back to that, the metrics that uh, um, net data shows mm. uh, are pretty much everything that you'd find in the UI as well. And I found, you know, again, duplicates of one I've already got. But if you didn't want anything else, yeah, it's really good for that. Probably similar in that sense to Telegraph. You can do the same thing with Telegraph of, you know, enable CPU monitoring, enable monitoring of all this all within one agent rather than having an exporter per process and export per application. So, yeah. Yeah. I guess it's also pushing, I think with Telegraph, it pushes to the, the is it uh, Influx? Uh, yes. Server. And then, uh, so you've only got to make the Influx server accessible and you've got, you know, you only have to allow egress from the, the uh, nodes. Yeah, that, that's the same model that NetData is using with NetData Cloud. Um, if you if you want to set up Prometheus to like a, a random server on the internet, you have to do all sorts of stuff with firewalling and mm. tunneling and things like that to to securely ping an, uh, a node exporter endpoint, I suppose. Yeah, although that does actually raise an interesting point. A feature they've added in the past couple of re- releases is called a Prometheus agent, and it's based upon the work Grafana did to use it as in an agent mode. And what you do is we'll almost run a minimal Prometheus, and what it'll do is it'll scrape any metrics for either the server that it's on. Uh, for, well, it'll get, you know, same Prometheus setup you usually get in terms of it can scrape the exporters, can uh, you give it the config, it can do all the service discovery stuff. But then rather than something then needing to talk to this Prometheus agent, it uses what's called remote write, and it will do the similar thing to um, NetData and what um, Telegraph can do with InfluxDB. It can now write back to another Prometheus instance. So actually, I think oh, they, they, they've worked on still getting the whole pull model of, uh, you know, within a data center, within, you know, within a rack, what, what, whatever way you're splitting up your infrastructure, but then also being able to do the push back to a central place so that, you know, egress is a lot, is, you know, you don't, you don't want to open up all your monitoring to the world, but it's not quite as bad as something um, sending data back kind of thing yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah it's it's oh i think it's still in beta at the moment or it's you know it's an experimental feature it's classed as but yeah mm. the, thanks to a lot of work done by the grafana side um, i think that kind of thing is coming to prometheus soon as well yeah i played a w- bit with remote right at the the uh the last place uh, uh kubernetes i think that they were trying to set up a, like a central observability service mm. and i had to play with the remote right to basically duplicate a load of uh, prometheus databases to a central a central database yeah yeah it, it seems to be something they've worked a lot on recently because because of this use case exactly and um you know other, other things like um you know looking at the serverless stuff uh you don't have enough time for a note for a, a um a lambda or what whatever the other ones are called I can't, you know I, i'm 
I know AWS, I know it's a Lambda, I can't remember what you call it, another one. Functions uh, as a service, basically. Yes, yeah. that that kind of thing. Yeah, the amount of time that they're up, you don't have the time to scrape it. So, uh, yeah, things like that is where things like Remote Write are going to um, come into more use. And, yeah, as I say, I think the past couple of releases, they put a lot of effort into that one. You know, Kind of sidetracking from net data here, but, yeah, it's just thought, thought it's worth noting that stuff like this, like net data and Telegraph, the whole pushing back, I think Pr- Prometheus, the developers themselves are just going to actually this is probably worth having even though it's not our model per se it's still worth having for when that use case is required so that people don't just go well i can't use it then i I think that also there are a lot of vpss out there that people are you know many many websites are running on you know a linode vps or DigitalOcean or whatever and uh you know, to have those be able to write back to a central location is quite valuable. Or have yeah. many different ones writing to a central location from different providers. Yeah. There's still a, a lot of call for that. Exactly, yeah. Cool. And then you wanted another thing you talked about, Joe. You want to talk to us about um, Let's Encrypt. You had a, uh, if anyone had any ideas or something, you were saying you had come across a, a niche or a, a solution you're trying to fix yeah so I, i've uh, it's probably a, a sort of shortfall in my automation more than anything else but um i've had a recently said so that there's one server that really that i use let's encrypt on and the way i've been doing it is is the the problem is the initial setup so you set up a plain http website um, and then you tell certbot to get a certificate for that for that website but the the issue then is that you have to rewrite the vhost file uh which certbot will do but the my problem is that my vhost files are not in the format that certbot expects so uh so for existing certificates it's fine because you've got the um vhost set up correctly um but it's just for that initial plain http give me a certificate uh, and then rewrite the vhost config. So, yeah, I spent most of Friday swearing at my, my <laughs> screen trying to fix this. Uh, so I'm sure people do have solutions for this. That there wasn't anything kind of readily available that I could that I could make much sense of or fit into my my own setup. Are you talking about vhost for Apache? Is that right? Yeah, Apache. Yeah, yeah. So, so what did he end up having to do in the end? Was it just override it or use the same certificates or, um, or, or what? Well, it's not, it, it's not actually, I haven't done a fix yet, but it's, ah. uh, it's going to be, I think, something like define the vhost with a, this is, I'm using Ansible for the automation. So, uh, so I've got my vhosts in a, in a list, um, like a, a list of lists. Yeah. Uh, and I just want to be able to add a let's encrypt item and say, if, if the website doesn't already have let's encrypt uh do do this bunch of stuff to and then rewrite the um v host somehow if it's already a let's encrypt site and everything's already encrypted then don't don't do anything yeah that that's the basic outline of what i need to do it's just the the implementation of it yeah is there another way of generating a certificate and then exporting it and then no, because you have to. Uh, the, I'm using the web root method, so it's because uh, I don't have control over DNS. So I'm. Uh, you have to say uh, the server itself has to contact Let's Encrypt. Let's Encrypt uh, pings. Uh, it, it writes the 
Acme Challenge in the well-known directory, and then let the Let's Encrypt servers use DNS to get to the domain. That's the server that you're on, which has got that thing in place. And then um, you get a certificate if everything's good. Uh, and then you, at that point, you have to rewrite the vhost file. Um, and you somehow have to have your automation deal with that. Uh, and I think, I think so the way I have, the way I have been doing it is, yeah, just define the site as plain HTTP, go on the server, run the, run the let's encrypt for the list of domains, go back to Ansible, make it a, a let's encrypt site. Um, and then everything's good. But for this new use case, it doesn't quite work properly. Yeah, I recently, um, and I'll get into a little bit of, you know, all, all this kind of thing soon, but um, I recently moved away from Apache and started using um, Caddy, which, given that what I was uh, deploying on my VPSs was pretty much all container-based stuff anyway, or at least if they could go in a container, Caddy's incredibly simple and actually comes out of the box with um, Let's Encrypt support. Um, And now one of the things I am um, taking advantage of is I've got a couple of domains that I point to the VPSs um, and... um, the caddy stuff is done uh, just by, you know, the website is available and it will talk to it, find out, you know, if it's available, at which point then it will generate a certificate for it. Um, but yeah, the, the caddy files are, you know, there's about some of them, there's only two or three lines in them and it's got everything it needs in there. Um, and this is using uh, one of them for, for RSS, one of them's for uh, read it later app. So a bit like um, Instapaper or Pocket, that kind of thing. And um, another one's for my blog as well. And um, as I say, all done with Caddy at that point. And I've stopped having to worry about Let's Encrypt. It just takes care of it, which <laughs> is, is great. Um, and on a very similar note, I'm doing the same at home with Trafic. Uh, Trafic, Traffic, what, 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 however you pronounce it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm doing the same with that. That what that does, um, you give it um, some details for. So I use Cloudflare for my um, domains managing the um, uh, DNS records for them. And if you give it the give it a user, sorry, API key that can um, edit the zones within Cloudflare, it can then do the DNS challenge um, where doing yeah. let's encrypt, and then it does it all automatically again. Yeah, it's nice if you have uh, API access to the DNS provider. Yes, (laughs) exactly. And uh, yeah, this is, uh, I now don't get all the um, errors and stuff like that when I'm trying to browse anything at home. It's all um, all behind HTTPS, even though it's all on home stuff. I'm using a proper domain and now it's essentially dedicated to, um, for use at home because I was never using it for anything else anyway. So. Um, yeah, so now um, everything's got a, a certificate on it. I don't have to keep ba- bypassing stuff. And my favorite one is on a Chrome-based browser. Sometimes it'll you'll have to type, this is unsafe if you want to go to something. It's just, oh, yeah. why can I not just go to it? So now don't have to deal with that anymore, and it's just taking care of it. So, yeah. But, yeah, as I say, Caddy's great and very simple. Um, traffic a little bit more involved, but if you've got – if you're using container stuff and want it to register things automatically, it's brilliant um, for that as well. And as I say, takes care of all the Let's Encrypt stuff for me, so I've stopped having to worry about that. It's great. Unfortunately, this is on a VPS, so I have to find some kind of hack for it. But mm. I'm sure it's doable. I, I was speaking to a friend of mine. Uh, he mentioned dehydration, which is like a – it's a bash implementation of Let's Encrypt from what I can see. Um, and 
you know, as this admins, we love Bash anyway. So. <laughs> yes. So I'm, I'm going to look language. at that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think they'll. I think we'll, I'll still have the issue with the rewriting of the vhost file. But uh, I'm sure I'll find a solution for that at some point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll I'll report back on 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 uh, a subsequent episode. Yeah. Definitely worth maybe asking our Telegram group to see. Yeah. If- yeah, if you haven't, if you you may well have already uh, replied to me when I put it on the Telegram group by the, by the time <laughs> this episode is out. <laughs> nice. Cheers, guys. And what <laughs> and what was the program you're talking about? Which you're saying the the alternative web server kind of thing you're talking about, Stu? Uh, so there's a couple I use. One of them's Caddy, which is just a it's Go based, and um, you'll probably find over time you'll find that I really like anything that's in written in Go because I love. It's a bit like it's a bit like the Rust thing on Juniper Podcast, uh, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like we we know in a little jingle kind of thing whenever you, whenever you say Go. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I'll, I'll see if I can find a sound for a Go for or something like that. We'll set that off every time I say it in future. Like but, a go for uh, or something. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yes, uh, it's it's written in Go. It's very simple. The config files, even at the most complex, is something like about. 20 lines long but you know to cover uh, things like um, the standard proxy pass thing you might do or file serving it's literally yeah. two or three lines of declaration and that's it and um, as long as your site is um, available and it's a um, so at my, my site is yetiops.net if that uh, domain is available um, on the machine that the caddy's running on, it will try to do a um, HTTPS challenge, with, uh, sorry, HTTP challenge with um, Let's Encrypt. And if it succeeds, you get a certificate automatically, take care of all of that for you. So yeah, it's, as I say, it's really straightforward to use at that point. It's a similar story with like Cert Manager on Kubernetes as well. Mm. You, you just have to kind of tell it Let's Encrypt and then it will sort everything out for you. Yeah. Yes, the, the, there's a lot of good tools that's come out of um, the prevalence of Let's Encrypt, and yes, I'm I'm happy that they've they, they became a thing. Put it that way. Yeah, I, I think uh, you can. So the Acme protocol, which is what Let's Encrypt uses, it is possible to do that for like paid certificates as well. So mm. um, that's handy if if a provider does that, and you want to, you don't want a Let's Encrypt certificate. Yeah, look look for a provider that does Acme. Yeah. Which probably most do now, anyway, as you say. Cool. So I'm going to go a little bit into what I've been doing since probably about the past two months now. So if anyone follows my blog, you'll have seen part of it there, but most people don't, so it's worth going through it anyway. Um, but so back in November, um, I thought that one of the machines that I have at home that runs virtual machines, containers, things like that, um, I thought I'd started uh, using too much of the resources on it because every now and then I was getting dropouts of my monitoring. Yes, I do run monitoring at home and I've got my own Prometheus setup, so hence why I noticed this. And I'd added a couple of VMs and I'd given them probably a bit more memory than I was expecting to, but I was using them as more as like development things and actually logging into and running things rather than just, you know, it running an application and uh, leaving it, leaving it to it. And I thought I'd put too much, um, started using too many resources. So at that point I started getting rid of VMs that hadn't used one of them. 
um, was a GitLab virtual machine that I was going to start using for continuous integration on all my personal infrastructure. Reason being, um, a lot of what I do to manage um, stuff at home was manually running playbooks or logging in and making changes, that kind of thing. And I was wanted to get to a point that if I, you know, if I bring a new device into the house or if I had a new virtual machine, I'd like to update a config file and then that's the end of it. I don't have to, you know, go in, start making changes, adding users to it, adding all the agents that I want to run all that kind of thing. I just wanted to add a couple of things and let it go. But as I say, GitLab was going to be my way of doing it, but I had to get rid of it. Turned out it wasn't a resource problem. It was a network card problem in one of the machines. I'm now using an external um, network card on that. It's absolutely fine. But in doing so, I um, started investigating um, some different continuous integration solutions. What I already had was something called Git-T, which is a another, it's an alternative to self-hosting GitLab, written in Go again. We need that go for sound somewhere. But it's a self-hosted GitForge, like having your own GitHub or GitLab or that kind of thing. But it doesn't come out of the box with any any um, you know continuous integration or anything like that. It is a web interface. It is a Git management. You can do all the standard things you would do with Git. So, you know, commit to it, you know, pull, clone, do pull requests, that kind of thing. Doesn't do anything outside of that that you may get, you know, GitHub has your GitHub Actions, GitLab has the GitLab CI, that kind of thing. There's none of that with um, Git-T. However, I did find a repository called Awesome Git-T. And what this has is a lot of uh, things that can integrate with Git-T. And one of them was something called Drone. And what Drone is, is a self-hosted um, continuous integration solution, which... I could have gone with something like Jenkins. I don't mind Jenkins, but I also find it a bit hard to manage. And again, I'm going to go back to it. Drone, also written in Go. Naturally, I started veering towards it again. And uh, all the pipelines, rather than being defined in Groovy, are defined in YAML, like GitLab um, CI, yeah. like um, GitHub Actions. You know, I'm a YAML engineer by day, so why not be one at home as well? So, <laughs> but um, yes, yeah, so I decided to set it up, get it hooked it up to Git-T and it worked almost instantly. So you get a nice um, web interface, at which point you can see all the repositories that you have in Git-T. So I have things like my Ansible code. I have things like my salt stack code. I have my website. It runs on Hugo. I now have that stored in Git-T. Previously added in GitLab. Um, the public version of GitLab, but um, I decided to move it to Git-T so I could host it myself, run all the drone stuff. And then I also have a mirror that goes to Git, uh, GitLab public. So it's always there, at least if, you know, for whatever reason my home infrastructure blows up, it exists. I just need to, you know, set it all back up again. But the nice thing about it is all you've got to do is enable a repository within the UI and then you add something called a drone file, which is this YAML definition. And yeah, I've been able to get it to work with Ansible. So with drone, you've got something called plugins, which they call it a plugin. Essentially, it's a container that would run a job. And it's similar to um, the GitLab and potentially the GitHub. Uh, you can run, uh, sorry, with GitHub and GitLab, you can add something called a runner. 
which when you commit something to the repository based upon an action, so whether you know it's based upon a pull request, whether it's just on a commit, that will go off and run it. Um, Drone has the same concept. You can have a runner, which will tell either, um, if it's a container-based runner, it will tell a container to spin up. If it's a, what they call an exec runner, it'll actually just run a process directly on a host. And there's also an SSH runner, which can SSH into a machine and do something there. Um, but yeah, as I say, the plugins are mostly containers. So it means that the container will spin up, have a clone of the repository somewhere, and then we'll be able to take action on that. And I've been able to get it to, so far with Ansible, what it does is whenever I make a um, pull request to my repository, it will run a linting job on it. It will do a test to make sure the configuration's fine. And it will then also do a Ansible run through, but um, in check and diff mode. Um, so it means that it shows you exactly everything that would change, but it doesn't actually um, apply it. And then you can see if there's going to be any problems. If there's not, you can then merge it in and then it will actually go off and apply it at that point. So it means that now my Ansible code, I add a, you know, say I want to add a host or I um, add a new virtual machine or, you know, I've just bought a Chromecast or something and I want to um, ha give it a static IP or something like that, which point I add it into my um, Ansible vars and um, commit the pull request and then I wait for it to complete and there you go, it's done. And I've got the same thing going off with Salt. The only difference between Ansible and Salt is it can't use one of the plugins because Salt has, um, is agent-based and they talk to a central master server, at which point um, you can't have the master server in a container that's going to spin up and spin down. It's got to be something persistent. However, because I'm using the exec plugin, it can go um, just log into the machine and actually run some of the Salt commands. So I get it to test the code and I get it to uh, build... Uh, sorry, I get it to test the... Um, make sure nothing's where everything's going to change. It will actually work. And then also it will make the changes once the pull request has been merged in as well. I've got it also building um, Go stuff that I work on. Um, it builds actual release files so that I can then deploy them to my machines. And the last thing I've got it doing is um, my website. It um, will spell check it for me. And uh, the first time I ran the spell check, it took about three or four hours to deal with all the spelling mistakes I'd done and all the gra grammatical errors and everything. And because the spell check doesn't know some some of the terms, so, you know, if you put node underscore exporter, it's there going, well, I don't know what that is. That's not a real word. Which point, you know, you're going through and saying, no, we can all this one and all that kind of thing. But it does mean that now um, whenever I put a blog up, it's automatically spell checked. And it will also um, use something called HTML proofer as well, which will check to see if um, all the links work and things like that. So, and um, then if I'm doing it um, as a part of a pull request, it'll put it to a test insight. I can go and look, make sure there's nothing that looks out of place. And then when I'm happy with it, click merge, and then it goes on to my, um, onto my actual website at that point. So the past few posts that I've done on my website have actually been based upon um, this drone solution. So it means that now I am, yes, it does feel a bit like I'm, um, you know, I've, I've turned my home stuff into a bit of a, a, 
almost like a commercial offering but at the same time uh yeah it just it, it's made things so much easier i'm not having to you know i want to add a virtual machine and it takes ages to do so because um you know i've got to remember which playbooks i wanted to run i've got to get it in, into salt and then because i didn't have salt set up properly and didn't have half the stuff in it there was things that was missing so i had to go in and do things manually now it's all taken care of i click a couple of buttons um tab you know, add, add a little bit of config in, and I just watch it all happen. It's great. So, yeah, I can highly recommend looking at um, Drone and Git if you want to have something that's self-hosted but has a lot of the same um, capabilities as something like GitLab CI and what have you. The only thing to be wary of is the open source version of it doesn't have the ability to do ephemeral containers um, in terms of runners. So you can spin up um, tasks ephemerally. So you can say, you know, I want to um, run my Ansible code and run it against my hosts, and then that container will go away. But the actual runner um, that um, sits on the host has to be on at all times. In the commercial version you can have ephemeral runners that will run on things like kubernetes so they'll spin up the runner and then it will do the job and then it'll spin it back down again so you know for my home infrastructure it doesn't really matter you know i'm not you know i'm not charged per container or something like that but you know if it's something that you're going to run um in a bit more of a commercial way you might want to um look at the um enterprise offering of it as well so but yeah, as I say, it's it's all working well for me. And I've even got it um, spamming me in Slack whenever I make commits and stuff like that. So, yeah, I really have turned uh, my home into something I've got to think about and start. I almost need, I almost need to start giving myself uh, a salary for it. Yeah. Have you, you can, I guess you can do approvals and stuff as well. We do the merge requests and stuff. I'm guessing. Exactly, yeah. It, it, so you can get your missus to preview your <laughs> request or whatever. So that... Yes, I, I, I think at that, that point, if I started having to wait for that, I don't think I'd um, ever, ever actually uh, get anywhere yeah. with it. But uh, but yes, um, yeah, you can, you can you know do as whatever approvals you want on it. You can um, integrate with something like um, HashCorp's vaults for secret management and things like that, so you're not um, storing them in plain text and things like that. So yeah, it's... I wouldn't say, you know, it does everything that um, GitHub Actions or GitLab CI would, but for everything I need and everything most people would need, especially, you know, some running something at home, but even, you know, the basics of what you'd use in a commercial setting, it probably covers 90% of what you need anyway. So, yeah, I'm really happy with it at the moment. I'm definitely, like, going, like, the YAML stuff at the moment because, like, I've been with migrating from our old system and it's not in YAML. It's all in, like, Java files and it's horrible kind of thing is we are quite blessed with having when you're getting some nice yaml and stuff so yeah i mean there's a lot of complaints about yaml and the you know the the weird structure of it sometimes but honestly i, I would take yaml over groovy any day of the week put it that way well the, the thing about groovy is it's a scripting language right yeah. with yaml's uh, it's just like a, it's data really yeah so it's a data structure so with with Jenkins, you can do more, but that also you can get yourself into more trouble, yes. I suppose. Yes, the, the, I, I've seen many, many broken Jenkins instances from someone adding a plugin, and now every dependency is broken along the way and things like that. So, yeah, you, you can really, um, really hurt yourself with Jenkins sometimes if you hold it wrong. I was, uh, I was going to say as well, um, it sounds like that this exercise made you re 
redo or rebuild code, bits of code that weren't working, necessarily working properly. So you're talking about um, finding a playbook and, and, you know, running, making sure you run the right playbook on the right host. Yeah. Whereas, um, I think I remember reading in the blog post, you, you had to refactor everything into roles. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, one of the, uh, one of the issues I had, and again, mentioned in that blog post, but was when I got back into Ansible um, about, it was about three years ago now, I think it was. And I wanted to start, you know, I had a couple of Raspberry Pis, but I wasn't doing a great deal. And then I thought, you know what, I want to actually start doing this a bit better. Got back into Ansible, but I don't, I never actually used roles before. I'd use playbooks as in more ad hoc stuff, but I'd never properly used it in a commercial setting. So I was always using it. Now. Oh yeah, this seems to work well. But yeah, I'd never got into the role side. By the time I'd got my head around roles properly and using them, I never found the time to go back and um, refactor all of my playbooks at that point. Until, yeah, as I say, the beginning of December, something, you know, something sort of sparked me and just went, no, I need to do something about this because it's every time I want to play with something or try something, it's, it's so much effort to do it. I almost go, you know what? I'll, I'll just run with what I've got and then, you know, make changes at a later day um, if I'm really, you know, really, really want to. Whereas, yeah, as I say, now everything's in roles. It runs on the right hosts. There's no restarts of services that didn't need to restart. There's, um, you know, I'm using Ansible handlers, which I wasn't before. So, you know, rather than restarting a service three times because, um, you know, uh, free dependencies have changed. It now waits until the end of all the tasks that require that handler, and then it will do the restart. So, you know, you're doing it once for the free, to- free things it needed to restart for rather than three different times, as I say. And just, you know, doing a much better job of the Ansible playbooks and also splitting out a lot of the... I was running Ansible and SaltStack, but SaltStack was more of a... I used it for console and not much else. Now I've gone completely the other way. I'm I've u- using Ansible now more as a get a machine ready for use of salt stack. So it would do things like install the salt agents, um, put some facts in there that salt can use. Um, and it would also do things like, um, you know, add it into DNS, add it into other places because not every host I have that I want a DNS record for will have a salt agent on. So, you know, I pretty much want static IPs for every device in my house, but I'm not going to be running salt on my PlayStation 4, for example. So I decided Ansible would be my way of managing everything, you know, saying what's on the uh, network. But then if anything needs anything beyond that, that's where the salt would take over. So, and yeah, I've done the same thing with salt as well, made that much better so that now when I use it with drone, something, uh, you know, a job doesn't start and restart five services that didn't need to restart because the dependencies um, hadn't changed, but it did it anyway because I never got around to, you know, putting proper prerequisites in place. So yeah, it's, it's been a bit of work. And to be, to be fair, as I say, I've probably put more effort into this than some projects I've done for previous employers. So, but yes, it's uh, a lot better to deal with now. And as I say, I can, add one thing and just watch it all happen. And yeah, it almost feels a bit like magic sometimes watching it. It sounds like I need to do this for my uh, freelance clients, to be honest, to just get a centralized sort of system in place um, and, you know, be able to onboard new clients or, or offboard uh, clients that I 
don't want to work with anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, that that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I think it, it will definitely pay dividends to do that. Yeah. Uh, it just it's just having the time to do it. But. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the nice thing with it is it's the drone um, server itself is just monitoring repositories as long as it's got access to the repositories, even if it's on a publicly available instance. It can it it's not just for Git it just works with Git but it also works with all the other providers as well. So you know if you wanted it with GitLab, you wanted it with a different. Uh, there's a few SaaS providers that actually do provide Git as a service as well, and um, one of them's Codeberg, and there's a few other ones. Um, if you wanted to use it with that, the runners will register with your server wherever they are. Yes, you would have to make that uh, server available so they can reach back to it. But it's it's the same with GitLab runners and GitHub Actions and stuff like that. They still need a way of registering to um, your central server at that point. Um, so yeah, it's you know it, it's it's ideal for you know whether it's multiple clients or you just know multiple machines or whatever at that point. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you could do something like run spot instances on your cloud provider of choice if if that's what you're going to do. Potentially, yes. And all, all you do with the runners is when you spin them up, um, they just register with a token back to the server. And you can, um, you, you've got a little key value thing that you can say if the runner has started with this key value pair, you can then say only run on um, runners with this key value pair. So it'll, it'll wait until, you know, if you've got a job there, but the um, spot instance isn't up yet, it will wait until there's a runner available kind of thing, the same most stuff would. Could you potentially do that on the not paid for offering then? Oh. Uh, you could, yes, on that one. I mean, that's that's how I've seen it a few times when I haven't quite managed the key value pairs properly. So it means that uh, you don't have to use these key value pairs. It can just run on any runner that's available. But if you want to have you know, certain jobs limited to certain runners... Um, yeah, as long as you get the key value pairs right, it'll run on them. If not, um, it'll just wait for one that's available that does have the key value pairs. And uh, yeah, let's say spot run a spot instance that registers back with the right key value pairs, it'll run on them kind of thing. The only thing that, as I say, that's uh, ephemeral that it can't do is you can't spin up a container ephemerally. Um, but an ephemeral instance, as long as you know it registers and then disappears, it's going to be fine at that point. All right. Do you go about spot instances? Is that like you're talking like an Azure when you 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 don't guarantee you've got the resource? You're just using the 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 um, resources which is like over provisioned. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. AWS has the same concept as well, and it's capacity that's unused right now, but may you may get the rug pulled from under you at some point. Yeah. So works perfectly for stuff like this, works perfectly for batch jobs that don't have a time limit, just need, you know, raw horsepower throwing at it when it's available. That's the the entire selling point of spot stuff. So yeah, something like this would be perfect for that as well. Cool. Sounds like you've definitely got plenty of time on your hands to do all this. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I found it. And then, uh, yeah, whether I'll, I'll have that time again, I don't know. But yeah, cr- there was a bit of a lull at Christmas, so I used it wisely. Well, w- wisely, in my opinion, maybe not everyone else's. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to discuss uh, SAS with support versus popular open source with great documentation. So... Uh, the question being, would you prefer a SaaS product that you have a support contract with, but less industry eyes on it? Or would you prefer an open source product with no support contract, but very popular in the industry with a lot of contributors? 
Yeah, I, I raised this one a while ago and it was partly influenced by um, where I was working at the time. And um, it was around the idea of, I mean, kind of what it says, but, you know, I was thinking, um, I was influenced by a couple of monitoring products at the time. So, you know, I've used Prometheus a lot, talked about on this um, podcast quite a few times. Um, And at the time I was using Datadog and Datadog does do a lot, can take care of everything for you but it's not cheap, whereas Prometheus is cheap in the sense that it doesn't cost anything to install it uh, in terms of, you know, actual capital, but it does, you know, it takes more to actually run it than Datadog does because they Datadog's got a team to do it, whereas, um, you know, Prometheus, you have to run it yourself. And it's the same with anything else that's, you know, SaaS versus running it yourself. So, you know, I, I thought I'd put this in as a, what which would you prefer would you prefer to throw money at something and um you know not have to think about it anymore or do you prefer more of a tailored experience in, in which point most of the time you've got to run it yourself i think it's all hang it all happens until something goes wrong isn't it and then all the eyes go why aren't we monitoring, why aren't we paying for this kind of thing yeah. or why yes yeah, so I, I, I suppose you know it, it's all well and good running something yourself until it breaks and then you just go i actually don't know how this works but <laughs> but then you get things like we've been dealing with azure PaaS services and 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 obviously all you need is just run up the a you just basically upload your asp code or sorry your .NET code and then they monitor they manage all the underlying infrastructure you don't have to um uh, obviously, they provide all the under, so you haven't got to worry about more patching IES, or you don't have to worry about um, what the resilience is. But then go we had an issue where we had a uh, an inter- uh, one of our websites go, one of our web apps go down, and like, yeah, it took Microsoft a good two, three weeks to come back with why it went down, and then they were kind of like saying. They we had like they had two different teams like saying the the solution architects from Microsoft saying oh this should work but then you've got the the actual people from the um, engineering team who after the after were saying another thing and it was just <laughs> I won't go into too much detail about it but no it was kind of it was like how many like they were saying how many the minimal instances you should need to run to uh, to make it like nine 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 percent uptime yeah. kind of thing and. Um, yeah, it's just, but then you have no under, uh, time to come again. We have problems with like different things where things go down and then you rely on them. Whereas like if it was your own infrastructure, you'd, you'd jump on it straight away and reboot the box or, or try and figure it out, figure it out, isn't it? Kind of thing. I, I, I can see both sides of the stories. Yeah, it's, it's exactly where I come from on that one. There's a few things that I would happily, you know, have a SaaS provider for it. I mean, you know, it's a bit of a common one, you know, in terms of, you know, the Linux world. A lot of people want to run their own email, but at the same time, yeah, I I would rather someone else did that for me. Whereas monitoring and, you know, sometimes, you know, what's running on servers themselves, I actually prefer to um, not not always use what, uh, you know, a SaaS solution because then if it does go wrong, partly, you know, it's a bit of a learning opportunity to work out how the uh, how the nuts and bolts of something works. But yeah, as you say, sometimes you can get in a situation where actually you'd be better off not having paid for the support because you didn't get it. So um, 
yeah, I mean, I, I, I've lost count of how many times when I was, um, you know, working more in the network industry of um, having to tell, you know, a third or fourth level engineer, no, that's not how your product works. This is how it works. And they just turn around to go, oh, yeah, you're right. And you're just thinking, what are we paying for at this point? <laughs> yeah, and also like as well, the same things like, you have no understanding what's under underlaying infrastructure, have you? Yeah. So you could have like a heavy host or something, and you and you don't you have no idea what's going on underneath it. Yeah. So, so there's a couple of things here. I mean, certainly AWS. I'm not sure about other cloud providers, but they. So if you're talking about a, a pass service, I guess you'd you'd have some kind of failover. Yeah. Or you or you you would yourself engineer some kind of failover. So. If it was a really critical service, you'd have another thing to route that traffic to if that service went down. Yeah. Um, so at, at the cloud provider level, even, maybe. The other thing, uh, or there's a couple of other things. Um, so it, I think it does depend on the service that you're using or trying to run and maintain yourself. So, for instance, Datadog, uh, the one time that I've uh, worked somewhere with Datadog, there was a, a heck of a lot of configuration to be done on the client side to get stuff talking to Datadog properly. So the engineer time is not is is non-trivial in that case. Yes. So, which is what you're trying to get rid of when you're using a software as a service. So. Yes, I, I suppose you know something like Datadog, and um, you know, not trying to pick on them or anything. It was just who that uh, came up at the time as to when I um, put this discussion piece and was getting the right set of values that would work with Datadog took, you know, a good few weeks and, you know, some back and forth with Datadog. But then at that point, you could almost guarantee that as long as, you know, they weren't in the middle of an outage or something, the login infrastructure would be there, the metrics infrastructure would be there. And you can more or less rely on it. Whereas, you know, if you're running your own, something goes down um you've got to either have the knowledge or you know hopes hope there's somewhere in a github issue or hope someone's actually found the issue before but that kind of also you know if something is open source you're more likely to see that there's an issue with it so that there's almost a you know sometimes you get the products that are you know SaaS and there's issues with them there's not as there's not enough information to be able to troubleshoot it yourself so you have to use support whereas you know some open source products are you know yes they're open source but they're that mature that there's so many people have used them so many people have seen the same issues that you probably have actually um, you might be better off going with them because every problem that's been you've pro- they've probably seen it already or at least can help you around it there's also the uh, the other thing about things that are not a service. So I'm thinking uh, a lot of uh, HashiCorp products, uh, which are all open source. So you, you have an issue uh, and you, you might search for a solution uh, and someone might have come across that solution or the solution to your issue before, or it may be a new issue. But quite often you get quite... Uh, quite quick responses if you put if you put an issue in yes even if even if it is a duplicate and you haven't found it among the thousands of issues (laughs) that are already logged against that that thing um someone will come and just say oh it's a duplicate of this one and then you know you know job done yeah that they'll usually be a fix in there whether it's a um you know there's 12 different ones and only one of them works but at least there's something you can try at that point yeah which you know some of them as well you know 
not not everyone's um able to read code but you know if you can sometimes you can at least you know find your way through and not understand everything about what it's doing but at least just go ah that i i can see something there that's causing a problem so yeah a good example of that was um a f- uh, couple of years ago was it a couple of years ago was it last year i'm losing track of the this uh yeah everything that's going on at the moment's making me lose track of time but yes looking at um it was prometheus's um aws discovery um one of the issues we found with the discovery was that if you use so-called bring your own ip in aws where rather than just the ips that aws own or you can use private ip addresses if you own your own IP space, you can use that within AWS so that, um, you know, you can tell a customer, allow these IPs through, even though it's coming out of AWS, you've authorized, um, authorized the machine, uh, sorry, authorized AWS, um, to use them IPs and for, um, it to emanate from their network with the IP. Um, the issue, however, the Prometheus, um, side was that despite, uh, despite that being a public ip it got added as an additional private ip and then when we were trying to use that with monitoring it would be trying to talk to a public ip to do the monitoring despite it being a private one so uh, yeah um and the only way we found that one out was actually digging into the service discovery code in prometheus if we'd have had a similar issue in you know i don't know solar winds or something like that you're at a loss and you're just hoping the support teams know or they can escalate to someone who can whereas at least in that case it was oh we can see roughly where it's doing this discovery that's where ah we can see that it doesn't pull this in or at least you know it's not doing the right evaluation on on it and you know there is something to be said for being able to look at it yourself and at least you know make a half guess at where the problem might be yeah open source for the win yep <laughs> yeah well, down with SaaS products now i don't mean that <laughs> cool okay brilliant i think we're towards the end of another episode then yeah so we're not far off that 100 a little bit late for your prediction but you know not not doing too bad we get there <laughs> definitely by next prediction show yes <laughs> yeah. so yeah, as always, thank Dave for doing our audio production. Um, thank you, Dave. Um, we're also a member, we're proud member of the Other Side Podcast Network. See otherside.network for more details about the network and the other members. Uh, I'd like to thank our, our patrons, uh, and they are Stu, Stuart. Uh, Stuart, thanks, Stu. Uh, Maha <laughs> uh, and Almo, Mike, Yannick, and Dave Lee, our lovely producer, producer Dave. And um, yeah, if you want to send any feedback um, on the show, there's multiple options. You can mail us at mail at admin admin podcast.co.uk or you can join our Telegram group, which there's a link in the show notes and on our website. So if you want to come and um, talk to us on there, talk to some of the other people in our Telegram group or tell us everything we've said is wrong, tell us everything we've said is right or, you know, somewhere in between, absolutely fine. Just come and talk to us. And um, yes, if you've got any other questions you want us to answer, um, we happily take feedback, happily take questions that people want want us to go through. Um, contact us by our email or in the Telegram group, and um, we'll try to answer it in one of the next shows. Or if you have a uh, solution to my Let's Encrypt issue. Yes, everyone join and help. <laughs> so, as always, uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Now it's over I don't need you anymore Now it's
You were just listening to a member of the Other Side Podcast Network. Find more of our shows at otherside.network.